back to another episode of Recording Radio. We have a unique topic for the guests and for the audience for today. Science and religion typically aren't two topics that people believe to coalesce with one another. But here we have those who are not only devote in the word of the gospel, but to also the scientific method. In that pursuit, we find ourselves landing at the Strata Turin. One of the highly debated and possibly one of the closest articles to God. Understanding this much, the discussion is highly contentious and highly debated. With most of these type of subjects, there has been a demystification due to the dating. However, one of the bigger contentious have also been the inability to replicate how the Strata Turin was even formed. Today, we have here Luca, who would give us a more elaborate introduction as to his specialization on the subject matter, as well as a long-form introduction to fully who he is. Luca. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm uh, Luca Cacciatore. Slight, I'm going to slightly augment that, that wonderful introduction that you gave me. I'm not a specialist on this by any means. I'm merely a journalist reporting on what other specialists uh, have been able to muster over the years regarding the Shroud of Turin. Um, but it was my pleasure last year to, to uh, uh, write an article about this for the April issue of Newsmax magazine. Um, as I said before, I'm a journalist. Uh, I've since moved on from Newsmax and I work in Texas um, for Texas Scorecard, which does uh, local politics here in Texas. But my, my site is always set on religious issues, theology, grander political issues. So it was a pleasure to, to write the article and I'm happy to share it with you guys. And it's a pleasure to have us have you on our show. One more thing, Luca. Where can the audience find you and your social media besides just Twitter? Well, you can uh, go to my Twitter, and then I have a link tree, and then that links to basically everywhere you can find me. Uh, my my Twitter is easy. It's uh, Luca uh, H, my middle name, um, and then Cacciatore. So um, I'm sure you guys will link to that. Yep, will do. Um, so to start us off of your first question I've had, what really led you to interest in the Shroud of Turin? What was something that inspired you in going further and actually trying to like compile research on it? I was first approached with the opportunity to write this article by Newsmax themselves. They wanted something for the April issue for uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter, of course, um, to to talk about the resurrection, to talk about the science that has developed in and around the Shroud of Turin since the infamous uh, 1989 uh, radiocarbon dating uh, that, 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 you know, had, had, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but had basically shot down any hopes for the legitimacy of the Shroud. Uh, there had been uh, a lot of science since then that, 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 that uh, went to the contrary, that may have indicated there is legitimacy uh, to, to this. And uh, it hadn't been reported on, you know, almost none of the latest scientific developments have been reported on here in the States. And if they had, it was through uh, Catholic uh, magazines. It wasn't through uh, any sort of media, uh, really, um, secular media or, or, or otherwise. So I thought it would be important to uh, take up that opportunity and vocalize some of this stuff because it is, it is quite interesting. I mean it's 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 happening right under our eyes uh the most recent study on the shroud that uh was was uh kind of big in in its effects um <clears throat> comes from only like two or three years ago and it was by uh, a Ital uh, italian team that uh, is utilizing new new uh radiocarbon methods uh so nothing no one had reported on that you know i i mean i'm sure people had but it was really only the National Catholic Register and a bunch of, uh, you know, Italian, Italian news agencies, but they weren't translated into English. So I thought it was a good opportunity to uh, bring this to the wider English consciousness. And again, as I'm a Catholic, thank you for bringing this to a larger stage. And I'm privileged, even though it is, like you said earlier, a hotly contested thing. I am more in belief of the Shouterin, but... For the audience's sake, can you describe for a layman what is the Shroud of Turin to someone who's never heard it before? Sure. The Shroud of Turin is 14 feet. It's uh, three inches long, uh, seven inches wide. Uh, it's a burial cloth. It's made out of linen. And it's a specific type of uh, linen fibril pattern 
that really was uh, unique to that area and that specific time in the first century of the, uh, the Palestinian region. Uh, so that alone is quite fascinating. Uh, but, but the shroud uh, depicts an image. It depicts an image of a man. And the man, uh, it's, it's a negative image, which is odd. You know, we don't have much negative images um, to, to kind of look to. Uh, but think of maybe like a, uh, a an old camera, like an old old uh, photograph from an old camera. Uh, it, before processing, it's a negative image. So that, that's essentially what the shroud uh, image is. It's only visible as a positive image where you get all of the details uh, if you reverse it uh, with some sort of processing software. And we can talk about how there was a moment in the late 1800s where that was done for the first time. And it kind of spawned a whole new interest in the in the shroud and what what it could possibly uh, have to offer. So, all right, thank you. And in regards to the um, shroud, you said that the main leading teams of research were Catholics, and you said Italians were doing it. Are there any other key members or notable figures in researching shroud that you'd recommend people look into? Uh, among, among the more modern people that are looking at the shroud. Uh, they're largely Italians. It's not. It's not the Catholics necessarily that are um, uh, looking into and researching it. It's it's the Catholics who are reporting on it. Um, I got most of my stuff on uh, w- within the English language on the recent research that's being done from uh, the Catholic Register um, and and things like that. Uh, so the the Church has uh, in its various arms been uh, trying to get this out there to the wider English world, but of course. Uh, their their scope is kind of limited to Catholic Americans. You know, a lot a lot of other people might not care or pay attention to it. Um, so, but 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 past research past research was was from all over. Uh, we can talk a little bit about the 1970s and uh, the Shrouded Turn Research Project, which featured experts from all around the world, primarily American experts who really took seriously. Uh, the shroud after you know years of speculation but no real deep deep dives uh, they were kind of the first to do a deep dive into it one of the people i believe to be an exceptional individual on the shroud is john jackson who ran a center for the shroud and potentially has some of the most detailed imagery about the shroud studying a lot of the methods including um the entry areas of the wounds. So I found that to be quite interesting among some of the people who have been going into research since the carbon method is possibly the hardest aspect to overcome. There's been things such as the way it's been folded, how that could be attached to certain cultures or um, the type of material it's made out of. So all that is quite fascinating to me in terms of like, not only people who have researched this, but the methodology um, in trying to indicate where it's from. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask earlier, especially with the new research. What methods or technologies have been employed in analysis, excuse me, um, studying the shroud? Like what has been used traditionally? Because I know we talked about the negative image, but you were mentioning earlier there was a new stuff going on. Yeah, so traditionally it was uh, radiocarbon dating. Uh, if, we're, if we're talking about the, the actual scientific hard stuff not the uh, image analysis, but, but the actual uh, traditional way of looking at it was radiocarbon dating because that was the only thing available in the late 1980s. And it, was all, it itself was kind of a novel thing, uh, which is why it took so long to actually get it. Um, but now you have like new types of uh, radiocarbon-like dating that's occurring. Um, so one is, uh, I think it was just two years ago, scientist uh, Lombardo De Caro of the Italian National Research Council he he uh, sat down with the the National Catholic Register and talked about how his his uh, group was was using a new X-ray dating technique called uh, wide angle X-ray scattering, and um, essentially what it's able to do is examine the natural aging of cellulose on the shroud. Cellulose is a certain compound that forms, and and after they did this, you know, dating of the natural aging of the cellulose. Um, it, it dates to the first century, uh, according to this this new this new way of uh, radiocarbon dating. So I found that quite interesting. I mean, there, there's countless other examples of of this. I believe there was somebody 
before Mr. DeCaro that, that, that did something similar. So, For the audience, why would Celios be an important way to indicate the time in which the shroud came from? Uh, so I, I believe cellulose is related to organic material. Uh, I, I, I could be wrong, uh, but I believe that, that it is related to that. I'm not an expert on, um, on that sort of thing, so I, I don't want to go too, too deep into it. Uh, but uh, I believe, yeah, I believe it's related to organic material, and um, it gives you a good indication, therefore, of uh, when this could have possibly been dated. So, and we can talk, you know, do, do you want to talk about the original radiocarbon dating and uh, the potential problems with it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's considered one of the biggest hurdles in, in the topic as it exists. Uh, I think it is extremely important to discuss what are the inaccuracies, but first, initially, just to get people up to date, what is carbon dating? I mean, carbon, yes. Yeah, carbon dating is probably in these introduction in of itself. Sure. Uh, radiocarbon dating, I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory. It's uh, looking at, and I don't know how scientists do this, uh, but it's looking at the carbon-14 molecules and uh, where they date to uh, based, on, based on their decomposition. And they basically compare the decay rate to uh, standard decay rates of carbon-14 over time. And uh, they're able to uh, predict uh, when before, basically before it was uh, decaying at the rate that it currently is. Uh, so I'm not, like, like I said, not an expert on any of the science <laughs> involving this type of stuff, but uh, I can give an overview of, of, of where it's happening and when it happened. Um, and then in your particular field, I guess, to move over from that, what would you say is something that you find most enjoyable about this or most compelling in regards to the Shroud of Turin? Sure. I mean, the most compelling thing for me is how it relates to uh, the resurrection. I mean, Paul says that that our faith is in vain if not for the resurrection. And I believe that the Shroud of Turin is a potential key here. I think it is the closest we're going to get to naturalistic evidence of the resurrection. And that's a massive thing. No other religion can really say, say such a thing, uh, except Christianity, if, if this is true. Um, there were studies about exactly how the image got onto the shroud. Uh, the image is not uh, paint. It's not really, doesn't seem to be organic, like uh, body fluids or anything. It's a very faint image, but detailed image with 3D attributes to it. And it's only on the top layer of the fibrils, of the linen fibrils. Uh, it doesn't bleed through, you know, of the, of the thousands, maybe millions of fibrils on the shroud. Not one bleeds through. I mean, really incredible stuff. So how is this able to be replicated and what exactly is this image? Well, I mean, there is, there, there's a lot of theories about what it could possibly be, but, but there, there, is some, there is some indication. There was an Eastern Michigan study uh, that, that connected it to possibly radio uh, or uh, possibly an X-ray, like an ancient X-ray image of some sort of uh, radioactivity that occurred on the person associated with the shroud. Um, and we can get into that a little bit as well, if you guys want to talk about that. Does anyone, do, do you have any thoughts on uh, what I've said thus far? Yeah, I guess my one question would be, how would the shroud compare to, in your opinion, to other like historical artifacts? Because I know there's some groups that claim to have the a thorn from the crown that Jesus wore on a cross. And there's other groups that claim to have like a cloth, but what makes this one to you think you think stand out even more? Is it just more into naturalistic evidence on it? There is really an abundance of evidence on this on this uh, specific relic. You know, I, I I myself am a Protestant. I have no particular care for many of the supposed relics that are flaunted by the church. Um, but this is totally different. I mean, there is just so much. There's so much detail and information within the image that would lead us to believe that it does have a first century origin. Um, and uh, we, we can get into some of that as, as well later on if you, if you like to. But there, there's just a sheer amount of information on the image itself is, is incredible. Um, Thank you. And we could get on to the next thing you want to expand on more about. 
Yeah, I, I kind of I wanted to go through a, a potential uh, just timeline for people so they can kind of understand like where this thing came from. So there's the official timeline. We'll just start with the official timeline. Uh, the official timeline is that a French knight named Geoffroy de Charny, uh, who, you know, no slum, this guy's renowned. Um, he fought during the Hundred Years War uh, with the British. Um, he was also involved in one of the last hurrahs of the Crusades, ex an expedition to the city of Smyrna. Um, so he was a renowned and respected guy. And I mean, this is important, right? Because a lot of people attribute the shroud to be a forgery. Well, I mean, this, we're talking about a knight here. We're talking about a renowned knight who had a fief, who was respected by everybody seemingly in his time. Uh, essentially, he he had this he had this thing he had this shroud and he displayed it uh, in his uh, fief in Leary. Uh, he started a kind of like college in in the in the fiefdom, and it's unclear if it was displayed like at a church within the college or or what. Probably that's probably where it was. Um, by the 16th century, it moved to uh, Chambry, uh, so that's like the Savoy area of Italy. Um, I guess on the border of Italy and France, um, and uh, it was it was essentially gifted to the House of Savoy. So the the rulers of Savoy uh, got this, and um, and and there was a fire, and this fire damaged uh, the outside of of the shroud, it, and these damages are still here today. And this goes into what we can uh, talk about a little bit later with why the X ray is flawed. Um, the the damage that it that it took dates to around the 15th century, uh, so that, that that's that's why potentially the the X-ray results were flawed. It's because they were um, looking at it and, and 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 doing radiocarbon tests from a part of the shroud that was last touched in the 15th century, of course. So, um, uh, point is from from here um, after the the damage that it receives, uh, the Duke of Savoy orders that the cloth be moved to. Turin, and it's remained there since. It's been looked at by the church. The Vatican has at points uh, taken it for itself, but uh, it's still, I believe, in Turin. Um, so that's the official timeline. Hmm. And then you said the debate intensified again around 1988 with the whole radiocarbon stuff going on. And then well, today. Well, even before that, in 1898 is when we get the renewed interest in the, in the shroud. I mean, it's at Turin forever. People just think of it as, you know, another relic, another Catholic relic. There had been some like intermittent interest, but nothing significant. Um, and it's understandable why, I mean, the shroud without the technology to, to invert the image is really not compelling. Uh, it just kind of looks like something anybody could do. Uh, it's not detailed at all. But it's actually um, a, a photograph from Secondo Pia in 1898, this guy, this photographer guy, um, where, you know, the new technology at the time, the Shroud had never had a picture taken of it, uh, at least a recorded picture taken of it that we know of. Um, pictures at the time, I talked about this a little bit earlier, pictures at the time in, inverted when, when you would first take the picture. Uh, so if it was a negative image, it would come out a positive image. It was a positive image it would come out a negative image and then you would have to uh process it and then you can uh, and then it you know becomes the desired image result well um when when pia takes a picture of the of the shroud um it comes out as a positive image it doesn't come out as a negative image uh and just so much detail is visible from this picture that people hadn't noticed before uh so you just have such a renewed interest now in what this is why is there a why, why is this thing a negative image and like why is there all this like detail that we had in the we had a notice for hundreds of years um and so you just have tons of speculation after that into the 20th century uh but it really isn't until the the shroud of turn research project with with uh mr john p jackson that we were talking a little bit about before that the modern timeline of the shroud as as a scientific endeavor uh, really begins. Hazy, do you want to add on to any of that as well? One moment. No, I'm quite all right. Um, no, sorry. There was a malfunction on my side, on my microphone, but I'm doing good now. No, we can continue from what we're going right now. 
Yeah, I was going to ask Luca, I was going to ask Hazy if you want to say anything, but really quick, what are some other key components you think the audience should be aware about in regards to the Shroud? Because we covered the timeline, we covered the different ways of like studying it. Is there anything else that you'd say is like pretty important? Yeah, let's get into like what's on it. So what's on it is, is fascinating. There are uh, observable pictures of various fauna uh, that date to the first century. Uh, there is potentially uh, a, a picture of so, so when people would die at the time, they would place uh, coins over the eyes. Um, I'm unsure exactly why they did this. I'm sure it had to do with like the decay or something of the body. Um, but there is observably coins on on the person's eye in the image, and the the coins uh, date to the first century because we can see on the coins uh that that there are greek letters depicting the caesar at the time of the said crucifixion um and uh if we reconstruct it we we don't have a complete picture of what the greek letters say but if we reconstruct it 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 probably is tiberius um i mean that is just a a direct uh correlation with the first century i mean you can't get any closer than that um but the image itself, I mean, it's just so fascinating. The 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 depictions of of blunt trauma, uh, the the fact that the, the the way that he is crucified was done in such a way that was unbeknownst to the 12th century or the 13th century when this thing was supposedly artificially created. Um, they had no idea. All the images of Christ in the 12th and 13th century depicted the crucifixion of his hands, the, the nailing of his hands um, in the center. Um, crucifixion had been abolished. People didn't really, people didn't really understand what, it, what was entailed. Um, and even today, when we think of an image of Jesus being crucified, we think of his, or nailed uh, for the crucifixion, we think of his hands having the, having the scars in the middle of them. Well, that's not a very good way to nail somebody to a cross. Uh, that part of the hand is very soft. It would basically just slide right off. And that's why in the shroud image, it isn't the hands, it's the wrists. The wrist is an area where you can have somebody, you know, essentially be stabilized if they're being uh, nailed to a cross. So also the way his, um, his feet are uh, folded, uh, it's, it's, through the, it's through the bone and the foot, um, the ankle. That's not a way that the crucifixion was really depicted at the time of the 12th and 13th century. That's something that we know that the Romans did. We found a, uh, a, uh, a nail through an ankle uh, in the, in the, not in the area where Jesus was crucified, but in an area where the Romans were crucifying people in the first to the like fourth centuries. So just tons of circumstantial evidence that a medieval forger would be incapable of knowing or doing. Um, but then also, like I was explaining, the incredible insights to uh, like plant depictions and depictions of, of coins, coinage from the era. And I'm assuredly forgetting, forgetting other things because there's just so much information on this image. It's remarkable. That's what I love about the Shroud, too, where people, some of his critics will try saying it's forged. I find that to be unlikely because how much stuff you'd have to go through to forge this would be insane, especially for, like you said, you know, back then not knowing this information on like how we're able to like check if it's validity or if it's real. That to me is something I always found very interesting on the shroud. And there's no simple explanation. Um, I mean, it, to, to write it off as a forgery would be silly because nine times out of 10, when people do such a thing, um, they're, they're calling into question the image and saying it's painted. Well, we know it's not paint. We've done the tests. We know that the image is not made of paint. So what exactly is this? What exactly is this image? And this is where I wanted to get into the most interesting part for me, which is the shroud as proof of the resurrection. And I think the image is absolutely fascinating to talk about. But I want to give Hazy a, uh, uh, an opportunity to jump in here. In terms of the ability to replicate the image in of itself, that's probably one of the biggest hurdles for most people discussing it. 
usually when we look to a science, we always are looking at replicatability. Naturally, if there is something fraudulent about this route, you look towards artists' ability to replicate it. They're like, okay, what about color? Color can't be recreated. We understand there is DNA evidence. Part of the shroud, what about the image? Once again, just simply go about it by looking at what sort of scientific advancements we've made in the modern day era. We would have to look at what were they capable of doing around the time period that the cloth is dated. And if not, then we have to remove ourselves away from that as well. Due to the accessibility of resources, as well as how the body is positioned, there isn't anything, at least currently, I've seen through extensive documentaries that have discussed this topic at large, including the BBC's discussion on the Shroud of Turin. There hasn't been anybody in recent years been able to show an ability to replicate what has been informed to us um, through any sort of artificial means. So that inaccessibility of that ability to even show that the shroud is fraudulent or phony or fake um, seems to strongly indicate to us that there is an event that did occur. Now it's all about discussion to, at the very least, center around when it occurred. Exactly. And like what Lucas said earlier about the coins that look like the Roman Emperor Tiberius, that would be, I'd say, a very strong case in the favor because, like, hey, it shows you what century it was in. It shows you the Roman Emperor at the time. But, Luca, if you would also want to comment something, and then we could go into the crucifixion and resurrection. Sure. Um, I, I had the opportunity, the amazing opportunity, to talk with Dr. Gary Habermas um, of Liberty University, who uh, inform, informed me of a lot of the modern studies that are going on with the Shroud. Um, Habermas just recently came out with the first of his four-part uh, evidences for the resurrection um, and case for the resurrection uh, series. I mean, this is like 50 years in the making, and this guy is the leading resurrection studies scholar that there is. And uh, he he um, he turned me on to some extremely interesting studies. I, most of them date to the 1990s in the uh, Midwest. Of, uh, of of studies of 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 X, the X-ray of the image of the shroud potentially being an X-ray image, um, and we can we can get in we can talk about that uh, if you want to. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. No, by all means, this is your episode, Luca. You can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, okay, cool. Let's do that. So, um, yeah, so East Eastern Michigan uh, chemistry perfects, professor. Uh, Giles Carter, uh, he proposed in the 80s that the image could have been the result of an X-ray phenomenon. And uh, more than a decade later, uh, Thaddeus Trend of the University of Toronto, um, he he flirted with the same idea. So so uh, so this is a quote actually from Habermas, which kind of summarizes their findings. Uh, uh, Carter, who was the first guy. Um, actually says uh, in this one article, I can think of three things that would make a body radioactive. This guy could have lived in a cave and the cave unbeknownst to him could have been, uh, could have had radioactive material in the cave. The guy could have eaten certain plants like lettuce or things that grow in the ground and the ground could have had radioactive qualities to it. But if it's not one of those, my third reason is religious. So that's like what Carter said in his findings. Um, so like, let's, let's go through the probability of these things. Uh, a guy living in a cave his entire life and not dying despite all the radioactivity that, that would have been present. Um, a guy who, I guess, spent his entire life eating plants that were on top of a radioactive cave. I mean, these just seem entirely unlikely. Um, so it's third reason that he, that he proposed was religious. Um, and that, 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 that's coming from the assumption, of course, that the shroud is an X-ray image. It, it's not... Um, it's not obvious that it is, but there's a lot of factors that would lead you to that conclusion. The fact that it's, of course, a negative image, and it's only after you revert it that it becomes a positive image would be one of the, one of the indicators. The fact that it's not paint, right? So this study was done under the assumption, I, be, uh, I believe, that it was an X-ray image. Um, 
So a lot of the common myths we already talked about were, you know, the painting one, the forgery. What are some other things we haven't touched on that you see as being a misconception regarding regarding the shroud? Uh, there, there's a lot of misconception. I mean, I mean, the right writing off the so so we can talk about the late '80s study, which kind of has been the favorite among skeptics. Uh, the late '80s study w- was not associated with STIRP, although it used a lot of the STIRP data. Uh, STIRP is the Shroud of Turn Research Project at Jackson was a part of in the 70s. Uh, this study came later, it was in the 80s, the uh, mid to late 80s. Um, they're essentially three separate tests done by uh, professors with Oxford University, University of Arizona, and Swiss Federal Institute of Tech. And um, they, after doing their studies, which mostly surrounded the edge of the shroud, they couldn't take anything off the image because, you know, of course, you don't want to damage the image. Uh, they concluded with 95% confidence that the shroud material only dated to 1260 to 1390 AD, around the time of when Decharney supposedly uh, acquired this, this thing. But like I said, that's also within the era of the original uh, fire damage that occurred. So it could easily be related to the fire damage. And they only, they only tested the edges, which were affected by the fire damage. They weren't able to test the image. Um, and as, as I've said before, there's, there's other um, scientific evidence since that has led to different conclusions. Uh, I, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned uh, um, DeCaro, um, but also there, there, there is research in the uh, Consiglio uh, Nazionale delle Ricerci. You've got to excuse my Italian. I know I am myself Italian, but I don't know great Italian. Um, Hey, you're saying it a lot better than we could. I'll tell you that, Luke. <laughs> uh, the National Council of Research. Right here, there you go. That's a good way to to pronounce it. Um, so um, there, there's been studies since that have that have gone in the other direction that have indicated that it is from the first century. And those are not uh, those do not focus entirely on the edges of the shroud. Those are things that incorporate other things within the shroud, like like the cellulose, which could be related to the the image of the plants. On the uh, or the the depiction of the plants on the image, so and how would, would you say, how would you say I guess going back to a point earlier in the resurrection, would you say this for the audience is in favor of right? Well, um, I kind of went over how if this if this is an X-ray image, which it seems like there's there's good reason to assume, although it's not definitive, there's good reason to assume it could be. Well, then how did the X-ray image get there? And I I, I explained how the uh, the Toronto and um, Eastern Michigan professors came up with some reasons of how it could possibly get there, but they seem highly unlikely. I mean, these are, these are stretches, uh, living in a cave, eating radioactive material. None of these yeah, explain how this person was. <laughs> that sounds right. like a bit of a stretch. <laughs> right. And none of these explain how this person uh, was so radioactive that he can emit an image. I mean, we have tons of, I should have mentioned this earlier, but we have tons of burial cloths from this era. None of them depict an image, right? So it's not like his natural body oils produce this thing. No, it's not body oils. We've tested it. It's not organic. So something's going on here. And it's certainly not explained by eating radioactive plants. He would have died. You know, he would have died at a younger age would know that if you eat radioactive things you die but apparently that was one of his conclusions <laughs> in the study exactly exactly which which kind of obfuscates the, the whole point which is really his third conclusion is, is the interesting one which is that it's it, a religious explanation is the only other type of explanation and he doesn't go into I, I don't believe he goes into what type of religious explanation but as christians we have the concept of the tra- of transfiguration events transfiguration events are usually defined by um, a, a vast amount of energy that befalls on a person uh, that in some sense transforms them. Usually an image occurs that people are, are able to see and witness when a transfiguration event happens, but it doesn't need to. It really just refers to a vast amount of energy befalling on somebody and a transformation occurring. Um, we call it a transfiguration. So uh, if, if, you, if you ask me, I think that's what's occurring. I think the Shroud of Turin depicts a transfiguration event after the death and burial of Christ. And I think that that's evidence of the resurrection. Thank you for that, Luca. Hazy, would you like to add in with anything else on that? 
Uh, no, um, I was really interested in hearing about the radioactive nature of the material that we were talking about. And I think that that's probably one of the most interesting things about it. Unique, another unique uh, observation is how methodical some people have been about the folding methods. And something unbeknownst to me, it was the methodology of how folding methods uh, could indicate certain cultures and how long it had been folded or had been touched within that time period. Um, one That's of the a things, great point. I mean, what do you mean by uh, the folding analysis? Yeah, can you guys elaborate on that? Sure. There, there are certain ways that uh, Jews in the first century uh, folded, ritually folded their burial cloths. And uh, it is folded in these ways. Now, this, to me, it's like, okay, we already went through the potential um, uh, images or the potential depictions on the image that could lead you to believe it's from the first century, right? But all that could be speculative, you know? It could be an eye trick or something. Um, you can't really fake, like, the way it was folded. And, you know, I hate to break it to you or anyone who's listening, but there is zero possibility that a medieval forger would have known the intricacies of Jewish burial customs. I mean, that is just almost an absurd thing to even propose. Uh, but but there, there is traditional Jewish burial customs in not only the, the folding of it, but also the size of it. Uh, it it's a certain cubicle length and width and height uh, that they would do, right? Because the, the shroud is, it has an image on it, but the entire thing is not the image. There's a standard uh, width and height that all shrouds had. So, hmm. like that. Let me see what else you'd be asking. Oh, something I want to actually share that I found pretty interesting is going on with like some future future research directions. I'm curious if there's any could be any more specific aspects of the shroud's mystery that could be revealed through more explanation. And hopefully, there's going to be more advancing in our understanding of the shroud because I would like to get to the point where not only as like Christians, but as like, you know, let's say scientists, they could point to this as evidence, if you will, of that time period and of a resurrection occurring. I'd love to come on again and we could do the, you know, maybe the more, um, uh, you know, uh, mythical reconstruction of the history of this route before Decharney. I'd love to talk about that at some point. Uh, but to, to, I guess, close it up, um, talking about the Sudarium of Oviedo is, is another proof for for the uh, for the shroud, and I'd love to talk about that. So, the sedarium is um, it's a cloth wrapped around the head, so it, it would accompany a burial. There, there'd be there's, there wasn't just one burial cloth; there was a lot of burial cloth, uh, and, and one of them would be uh, a piece of cloth that's wrapped around the head. And um, well, th this is also an artifact in one of, in a Catholic church. Uh, this sort of, it claimed to be the, the sedarium that was wrapped around Jesus's head. Um, it's located in Oviedo, Spain, in a church in Oviedo, Spain. And we have a lot of data about it because uh, it's easier to test. And we know for sure that the sudarium um, it dates around 700 AD. It could date before that, but we know for sure it dates at, at least... Uh, 700 AD, and that is 500 years before uh, the Shroud of Turin. Um, so that that would immediately call into question the uh, radiocarbon studies from the late 80s, um, especially when you consider a couple things. Uh, the the bloodstained piece has its blood stains in the same exact areas that are depicted on the Shroud of Jesus's head. And uh, and uh, his uh, his elbows and such. Uh, that's too that's too unlikely to be a coincidence. And probably the most definitive thing is um, it has the same blood type, <laughs> and we know that it's real blood on the shroud, and it's a rare type of blood. It's AB blood, which uh, is only shared about only only shared by around one to four percent of the population. Well. The sedarium of Oviedo is also AB blood. So we're, we're starting to get into some like really like statistically impossible things. So we're, we're saying right now that the, the, that on, on this sedarium, you have the same, you have the same, uh, uh, 
blood stains in the same spots as, as the shroud, and you have the same blood type, which is a rare blood type, not a common blood type. I mean, this is a very compelling case. I'd be looking forward to, again, having you on my show for whatever you want to talk about as well. I've always enjoyed hearing <laughs> you on like, Twitter spaces, joking around stuff. Would yeah. I forgot to ask one more question. I'm sorry if I did not bring this up earlier in the episode. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I heard about something called pollen analysis. What exactly is that in regards to the shroud? Um, I'm, not, I'm not particularly. I would have to um, look at that more. Um, I think I remember talking about that potentially a little bit. Um, that might be related to the cellulose studies that were done. Uh, because really, true. yeah, because really what the most interesting thing is um, about some of these newer studies is they're incorporating some of the now known organic material on the shrouds image, uh, overwhelmingly of which are plants. Uh, so they're studying the plants, they're studying when those plants could have been there. And they all seem to date to around the first century. Um, so uh, I would assume the pollen studies would also be related to the plant evidence. And would you say- And of course, and of course, sorry, um, also the, oh, the fibrils, the fibrils catch stuff, right? Like, like cloth will catch stuff. So it could, it could catch pollen, you know, cloth can, and people know this, right? I mean, you, you, you have cloth at your house and it's got all types of gunk in it. So uh, it, they could also just look at the, probably just look at the fibrils and try to isolate the pollen in them. So. Yeah. You already know everything about pollen if you're down South in Atlanta or around the Georgia area, pollen is not fun down South, <laughs> but after all, Oh, yeah. No, any one of my listeners who live in the South, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. But out of curiosity, what looking ahead, what do you hope will be the lasting legacy of research on the Shroud Turin, both in a scientific community and like beyond? Like, what are you hoping would be the final, if you will, conclusion of this? Well, what I'm hoping for is definitive naturalistic evidence of the resurrection. Now, that's a lofty thing to hope for. But I think that I think I, I think it's already there personally. I think there's already enough. Um, but I think it can be explored further. I think the exploration of the shroud as as an X-ray, uh, an ancient X-ray needs to be further looked at. It kind of stopped in the 90s. Um, but but you know I, these were serious universities that were looking at this, Eastern Michigan, Toronto. Um, so I, I think we need another paper on that. Um, I, I would be looking forward to something like that. And I'd love to report on it if it ends up uh, happening. Yeah, I'd really love you to be back and reporting that again, too. I think that'd be amazing. But I'd have to think what else. Hazy, do you have anything else One to say? One of the things I thought was interesting to talk about was, well, people who have been in possession of the Shroud. One of the people who Jeffrey Deshaun found out that one of the people who possessed the Shroud was one of the descendants of the crusade. Yes, that's the charming. And I wanted to, <laughs> I kind of alluded to there being a more, uh, you know, niche story to the, the, the origins of the shroud a little bit at the beginning. I'd love to come on again and talk about that because it, it does not start with the shirning. Uh, it does not, it goes back farther and um, it goes really at what, where it starts is, is his, uh, uh, his descendants and, uh, or excuse me, his, um, his ancestors. So the Sharni's uncle was a Knights Templar and, uh, he was involved in the siege of Constantinople where there was, there were rumors of a, well, not rumors, kind of like definitive proof that there was a image of Christ in, uh, the, one of the churches in Constantinople. So anyway, um, I'd love to talk about that more at some other time. Agreed. And thanks again for having on to discuss this. Hazy, are there any other things you want to throw in or questions in general to ask? No, actually, this has been an exceptional episode and I appreciate you being on and hopefully we can have you on for another episode. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, Thank you, guys. Luca, I want to ask you one more thing also. I know you mentioned earlier, you said you not really have a strong opinion on other like relics, but... For my for the Christian audience, if you were to talk to a Christian about the Shroud Turin, would you tell them to embrace it or be skeptical of it? Or well, you know, always, always be skeptical. Look at the evidence. I mean, but, but that's the wonderful thing about this. It stands up um, to the evidence. 
So always be skeptical, always demand evidence, but, but actually investigate it. I, mean, I can't tell you how many Protestants that I've talked to about, about the shroud who have written it off and haven't even looked at the evidence. I mean, so that, that's not good. You don't want to do that. That's not being inquisitive. Um, so I would encourage people to do that, you know? Agreed. And we mentioned earlier some names. John Jackson, I believe, was brought up. You said there was the organization, STERP, team that was also doing a lot of stuff michigan mm -hmm. so stirp is has since been uh not necessarily about they've kind of transformed into more of a museum uh and they're located in colorado i'm, I'm on, it's unclear to me if jackson is still alive i i believe he has a mutual friend who has confirmed that he is so that's right. good that he is yeah, but he's kind of done he's yes he's, he's not online really anymore um he kind of keeps to himself that's unfortunate. I, I would have loved to get him on the show originally. I think I called you. I wanted to have him on a few, but unfortunately he was too ill and he says he's past the time like podcast stuff. Mm, that's unfortunate. Um, but great respect for him. Um, and, and also uh, Barry Schwartz, um, who would be a wonderful guest on this podcast. He's a, he's a, was one of the researchers of the original SERP team who now runs the shroud website, the main shroud website. And he's actually a Jewish man. Um, I don't know if he became a Christian or converted, uh, but the Shroud has had a lasting uh, influence on him. Uh, he, he was involved in the, the image and photography processing of the Shroud. And uh, he has some incredible things to say about the three-dimensional properties of the image uh, that, that he was one of the first to observe. Um, and he's be since become a believer in the shroud. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure if he's a, a Christian, but uh, kind of remarkable, you know? I also want to add in a name too, of like Raymond Rogers, if you're familiar with him, because he was one of the first people who challenged like the whole Rio carbon dating uh, response from the study we're talking about, the 1988 one, where he told them like how bad they'd done that study. Was like, well, this isn't really a good argument against the shroud. So hats off for him too. Yes. Raymond and Rogers, um, he, he wrote the book, uh, A Chemist's Perspective on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, so definitely check that book out. He was uh, also a part of the STIRP team. And um, un unlike uh, Schwartz, who was in the imaging side, he was on the chemical side. So you, you can actually look at, at multiple different dimensions to uh, the results of, this, of the STIRP analysis. And people in you know, completely different parts of the study uh, you know, coming to similar conclusions. And that's why I love, again, I'm going to keep bringing this up, but I love about the Shroud Turin when discussing it, because there's so many different ways you could study and observe it. Like, you have, like, Pam Wood, for example, we're talking about the blood stain. She's a forensic scientist confirming, like, yeah, this is not paint. This is blood. And, like, going down a list of all these, like, really respected individuals covering it. But it's... Yeah, the, well, blood, the blood evidence, which I, I kind of alluded to in the sedarium thing, is definitive. Uh, we know it's blood with basically 100% certainty. Um, and that's important. How do you get like, whose blood is it if it's a forgery? Right. And why is it AB blood? AB blood is extremely rare. Uh, and why is it the same type of blood that is on this other art, ancient artifact associated with Christ? Agreed. Would, before you go, is there any other book recommendations, certain papers or studies or individuals you'll tell the audience to look into? And of course, we're going to be plugging your article that you wrote into this episode as well for people to view that. Uh, a chemist perspective, uh, you, you alluded to him, Mr. Mr. Rogers. Um, uh, the National Catholic Register has done a fantastic job on reporting on this stuff, on the, the latest stuff that, that happens. Um, and then I would also like scour, scour um, the internet for like studies. Because there are studies, there's like scientific studies on this. Um, Ian Wilson, well, we can talk a little bit more about the kind of like uh, history of the Shroud, but Ian Wilson has been uh, big on reconstructing the history of the Shroud. He uh, connects it to uh, potentially the image of Edessa, uh, which dates in the first uh, five centuries of Christianity. Uh, so Ian Wilson's stuff is is really interesting. Um, I would check him out if you're interested in the kind of like uh, niche like history. 
Agreed. And again, I can't thank you enough for being on, and I'd love to have you on for our topics, because I know you're also very knowledgeable in history, and I'd like to discuss how the majority of the early presidents and founding fathers were Unitarians, and their effects on America, but sorry about that bit off topic, but yeah, you're more than welcome back on our show to discuss anything you'd like. Oh yeah, I'd love to do that. That'd be super interesting. Hazy, would you have anything else you'd like to say? As a closer for the topic at hand, I believe that faith is the strongest tenet of a religion. It asks us, or all people collectively who follow the religion, as someone who's not religious, it often is the prescription of believing in what is beyond the tangible. For those who would delve into our current understanding of the world and pointing to there being more than simply the faith, not to say that isn't a strong opponent, is a highly respectable endeavor. And I also believe that anyone who can point us to not only suspicious correlations, but exceptionally compelling evidence that could lead us to understanding the word before us and prior to us is very commendable. And I appreciate anyone who is pursuing those particular endeavors. I appreciate Luca for coming on to discuss those uh, extensive links. So thank you for coming on. And if there's anything you guys would like to say for the closing, I appreciate you doing. Yeah, I'll go ahead and say something too. But again, another thank you for Luca. We covered in this episode the history of the Shroud. We covered all what includes it, what is the Shroud, and talking about a lot of the lead players involved in research and a lot of misconceptions or myths that thankfully Luca showed through like why these don't hold up or stand up against the Shroud. But it's been a very enjoyable experience, a very enjoyable podcast episode. Luca, do you have any closing comments or anything you want to say? Sure. I would say that, you know, our, our faith is is ultimately allegiance, it's trust. And it, it's not contradictory to to the evidence, you know, when Paul is proclaiming in the Areopagus that Jesus is king and his kingdom is near, he's talking about something that God did in history. He's talking about facts, and he's talking about how the world is different because of those facts. And I think the Shroud of Turin might be a key to us really recovering that, you know, a faith that isn't propositional, but a faith that's rooted in history and God's actions in history. All right. Thank you very much. And... Thank you all for tuning into this episode of Record Radio. I look forward to seeing you in the next one. Have a good rest of your day.